Uh, This morning, we are finishing up a sermon series on the book of Zechariah. If you are just joining us, Zechariah is one of the minor prophets near the end of the Old Testament, uh, written to God's people after they've returned from exile in Babylon. They're back from captivity, but things aren't going uh, particularly well for them uh, in the homeland. Uh, And if you'll remember, what we've been saying is that this book is written to encourage God's people. Uh, we, we hope that it's been an encouragement uh, to you. Uh, and even as we read from Zechariah for the last time, uh, maybe even some things that are strange, uh, I would invite you to look for the encouragement uh, that God has to offer here uh, in these last few chapters. Uh, hopefully you've had a chance to unstick those pages Uh, in your Old Testament, uh, and you found that this really is a book of the Bible. Um, And because of that, we we can have confidence uh, that it has been both written and preserved uh, to tell God's people then and to tell us now about the history of salvation, all as it culminates in God's Son, uh, Jesus Christ. So if you'll turn with me now uh, to Zechariah chapter 12, Um, It's printed there in your bulletin. If you've got your Bible, if you can find the New Testament, it's two books before Matthew. So Matthew, if you flip back to Malachi and then flip to Zechariah, I'm going to start reading in verse 10, and we'll read through the end of chapter 13. This is the holy, inerrant, inspired word of God. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves. And all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land. So that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will Not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet. I'm a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire, 
and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you again for the privilege of coming into your presence by the blood of your Son, and we pray now that by your Spirit uh, we would hear from you, from the Word of God himself, and we pray these things in his name. Amen. Uh, I don't really keep up with a lot of uh, new music or contemporary music in spite of the fact that I live in Athens, but uh, there was a time when I was really into a band uh, called Radiohead. Um, we have another pastor here uh, who has referred to them as the Radioheads, if you remember that. Um, <laughs> but I used to really like some of their early albums especially. I even kind of got my 15 minutes of fame. I got to play in a band uh, at the Georgia Theater while we covered OK Computer and one of their albums. It was really fun. But uh, there are pictures to document that if you're, if you're curious. Um, <laughs> But they have another album uh, before that. When there's a song on it called "Street Spirit," and um, it's kind of a haunting, brooding song. And each one of the verses on the song describes this sort of hopeless, hopeless scene. And at the end of each verse, he says, "Fade out again, fade out again." Now I know that almost none of you actually know that song, but I want you to listen to what their singer, uh, Tom York. I want you to hear what what he has to say about what it's like to perform that song. He says, our fans are braver than I to let that song penetrate them. Or maybe they don't realize what they're listening to. They don't realize that street spirit is about staring the devil right in the eyes. And knowing no matter what you do, he'll get the last laugh. And it's real and true. The devil really will get the last laugh in all cases, without exception, And if I let myself think about that too long, I'd crack. I can't believe we have fans that can deal emotionally with that song. That's why I'm convinced that they don't know what it's about. Now, I don't happen to agree uh, with Mr. York. I hope you don't either, that the devil is the one who gets the last laugh. But he's convinced uh, that the world's coming to an end, and not just an end in general, uh, but an evil end. And it's so weighty. For him to even consider that he can barely sing his own song. And yet, you know, night after night on tour, he sings this song to large crowds and they don't really have a clue uh, what he's talking about. They're completely out of touch uh, with the weight that he feels. uh, And they're they're just happy to sort of hum along uh, because they like the guitars. So my question for us this morning, my question for you is, have you uh, been listening? Do you know what Zechariah is talking about? It's certainly not uh, that the devil uh, gets the last laugh. It's actually quite the opposite. Uh, Zechariah is out to say that God will have his day, that justice will come. The enemies of God are going to be wiped away as he secures eternal salvation for and everlasting fellowship with his people. But do you know that that day is coming? Is that day even an encouragement to you as you hear about it now? Is it just meaningless sort of church talk? 
Or as Tom York says, do you know that it's real and true? To put it another way, uh, do you know where you stand with God? Since this is uh, the last in a series on Zechariah, let me just quickly recap what he has been saying. He began the book with a call to repentance, followed by these night visions in the first six chapters, where with vivid imagery he depicts God's behind-the-scenes activity to bring about all his good purposes for the world. In chapters 7 and 8, he chastises the people. He chastises them for their displays of sort of outward fasting while their hearts remained diamond hard, he says. And then in chapters 9 through 11, he begins to describe the coming shepherd king. He tells the people that this king is going to ride on a donkey, uh, that this king passes through the waves of the sea, and this, this king is going to be sold for 30 pieces of silver, a slave's price. The shepherd king uh, will at the very least be unconventional, uh, if not even repulsive in the eyes of the world. And then in the last three chapters, in chapters 12 through 14, Zechariah tells us all about that day. Now, the phrase that day is mentioned 16 times uh, in these last three chapters. It's the day of the Lord that the prophets often speak about. It's the day when God will bring about with certainty all that he's promised to do. So if chapters 9 through 11 were about the character of the shepherd, when you get to 12 through 14, it's all about the work that the shepherd accomplishes, particularly in the lives of his people. His actions are going to bring about a new creation. So that when you get to the final chapter, chapter 14, uh, we're told about a world, a world where all the families of the earth will come to worship God and everything in the earth will be devoted to him and called holy. So did you catch all that? That's, that's the book of Zechariah. That's where this has all been going. Uh, this passage that we're looking at this morning, just before the end, it's the last part of 12 and all of chapter 13, uh, what we see here is the work of the shepherd in his people's lives. Uh, this, is, this is the fruit of the shepherd's accomplished work. So what I want us to look at, what I want you to see is that the sacrifice of the shepherd brings a new creation in all those who will call upon him. Okay? The shepherd king's sacrifice brings new creation in all of those who call upon him. We'll see three aspects of this shepherd's new creation work. First, we'll see that the shepherd's work brings repentance. Uh, the shepherd's work brings cleansing. And lastly, we'll see that the shepherd's work brings refining. Okay? It brings repentance, cleansing, and refining. So first, the work of the shepherd brings about uh, repentance. We see that uh, right away it's God and the work of his shepherd king that actually enable us to repent of our sins. Look with me at verse 7. Verse 10, sorry. And I will pour out, that is, it's God himself who will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. We already learned back in chapter 4 that the people needed to realize that the completion of the temple 
could not occur by their own efforts. It had to be a work of the Spirit. Do you remember that? God said to Zechariah that the temple would be completed not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit. It was clear there that the temple had to be, um, had to be completed by God himself. And now, the new temple, God's own people, will also be a work that is initiated and carried through by God himself. So God calls what he pours out here the spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. It's grace and supplication in some translations. Uh, but what he gives uh, through the work of the cross, as we'll see uh, in just a moment, is the ability to cry out to him. He gives us our pleas for mercy. Now, if you have wondered or if you have doubted uh, whether you are truly repentant, uh, your own prayers for forgiveness are a sign that God has given you the gift of repentance. It is a sign that God is already at work in your heart. And what we see here is that the gift of grace and pleas for mercy also bring us to a place of mourning. And notice here, everyone is mourning. In verses 12 and 13, it's the houses of David and Levi and their sons, Nathan and Shemai, refer to all the kings and priests, and he includes the wives to make sure you know it's the whole family. And if it's not clear already in verse 14, he says, and all the families that are left. And then you have this reference to the plain of Megiddo. It's probably looking back to Second Chronicles 35. I know you all are familiar with that chapter. Uh, this is where good King Josiah, uh, the last good king in Judah, is killed, and all the people mourn. But the point here is that everyone is mourning. Uh, individually and as a corporate body, God's gift of grace and supplication is bringing them to mourning. Jesus tells us, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. But this is not a hopeless mourning. Uh, this is Zechariah's description of true repentance as it's given by God's Spirit. So we need to pay attention to exactly what they are mourning for here. They're mourning for the one pierced. Look at verse 10 again. So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. You see that? The one pierced is so closely identified with God. He says, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, and then, of course, he compares him to an only child, to a firstborn son. Uh, this is the same shepherd that Zechariah has been talking about the previous three chapters. If it's not already clear to you, the New Testament makes it very explicit. In John 19, a Roman soldier who had never read Zechariah and probably never heard of him, pierced Jesus in the side so that, as John tells us, the scriptures might be fulfilled. The one pierced here in verse 10 is the shepherd king himself. It is Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, sent to save all those who look on him. So this morning is not... It's not a general feeling of sadness. Uh, it's not even a mourning over legitimate hardships 
or a mourning, even over the consequences of sin in our own lives. The domino effect that sin can have uh, can be so incredibly uh, confusing and, and painful. But in this case, to focus on our personal repercussions of sin is actually to get things uh, out of order. Um, it's like the quarterback who's really upset about his completion percentage and forgot that he lost the game. Um, what, what Zechariah is after is mourning over sin itself and the effects that sin has on Jesus himself. Isaiah 53 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. There's a quote um, on the front of your bulletin from Thomas More or T.V. More where he says, True repentance is, after all, only love weeping at the foot of the cross, the soul sorrowing for sins that have been so freely forgiven. The heart of true repentance is what Paul will call godly sorrow in 2 Corinthians 7. Or 2 Corinthians 7. It is, it is a grief over the very sinfulness of sin and our own participation in the crucifixion of God's own Son. So we sing, It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Uh, one of my sons... Um, he doesn't do this as much anymore. But there was a time when he would get in trouble. Uh, his immediate reaction was to burst into tears and say, I don't want a spanking. Um, now, his tears were real. Uh, he really was sad. Uh, but his sorrow had everything to do uh, with the consequences uh, that he feared uh, and not really anything to do uh, with the fact that he had disrespected his mother who brought him into the world. Um, I don't know if he's listening. Um, now, you and I, we wouldn't be, we, you know, we wouldn't be so blatantly obvious about this. I mean, partly it's because we're, we're we probably think of ourselves as a little more sophisticated uh, than those children. But also, I mean, I think often we just don't think our sin uh, is really that bad. So we find ways to discount it, and we call it a mistake, and we call it a slip-up. If you are feeling spiritual, you might say that you've really been struggling. But all these euphemisms uh, have a tendency to skip over uh, the depth of our sin without any real grief or acknowledgement that all our sins are ultimately against God himself. So, here's a, here's a test question uh, for your morning this morning. Uh, does your sadness help you to look on Jesus, who was pierced? Does it help you to feel sorry for yourself, or does it drive you to trust in God alone and cry out with pleas of mercy? Only helpless sinners can mourn like this. Those who know that they have no other hope. Our shepherd's death on the cross brings us repentance, enables us 
Not to look past our sin, but to mourn over it as we look on him. So the second aspect of our shepherd's work is that it brings us cleansing. That is, Jesus' work on the cross is the source of an overflowing fountain of grace that takes away all our sins. Look again at verse 1 of, of chapter 13. He says, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Notice the abundant source of this cleansing. It is called a fountain of grace here. This is not a drop or two. It is not a, a sprinkling but a wild and extravagant provision of grace for his people. This fountain is more than enough. It never runs out because it's from God. And he never gets tired of you. Ezekiel's description of the new temple uh, might have been in Zechariah's mind here as he describes... Water flowing out and getting deeper and deeper and covering the earth. But I thought of showbiz pizza. Have you guys ever heard of showbiz? You don't know about showbiz? It's sort of like a Chuck E. Cheese competitor. Um, they have pizza and skee-ball and disease. Um, <laughs> Um, sorry. <laughs> this is serious. I'm sorry. Um, well, when I was about four, I went to Showbiz, and they have this, I guess they call it a ball pit. I think you guys know about that. It's like a big box um, full of plastic balls about two feet high, and you're just supposed to jump and play around in it. Well, I wasn't much more than about two feet high myself, and when I got in, I fell down, and I fell under the balls, and I know this is impossible, but I thought I was drowning. <laughs> um, I could not get out from under the plastic balls, and someone had to come and like, reach in and pull me up out of the drowning plastic balls. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't know if that ever happened to you. If, if, even if it did, you probably don't have the same memory of it that I do, but maybe you can picture it. These balls just surrounding you on every side. Uh, apparently this unending supply that you can't get your way out of. Well, this is what the cleansing of the cross of Jesus Christ is like. It will cover you up. Its source is the abundant and eternal love of God himself. Zechariah is very plain here. He tells us that we need to be cleansed because of sin and uncleanness. It's, it's the guilt and ongoing power of sin that make cleansing absolutely necessary for us. Um, at this point, the people, they've returned from exile and they've even apparently finished the temple, but they are still failing. They are not living uh, with love for God or love for their neighbor, they are living for themselves. They are living for what they can get and living for what they can see. And Zechariah is showing them, you don't need to start over. 
You need cleansing that is from the inside. Maybe, uh, maybe you don't really think you need uh, that kind of cleansing. Uh, perhaps uh, you don't think you need cleansing at all, or you would be okay with just a little sprinkling, or maybe a touch-up every so often. But God, he will either make you new, or he will not have you. Uh, do you know that your problem really isn't on the outside? If you have tried to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength for more than about five minutes, then you know that you need to be cleansed. You and I uh, need to be made clean. We need to have our sins washed away down deep from the inside. And Zechariah is saying, come to this fountain. In verse 2 here, he actually mentions idolatry and false prophecy in particular. Uh, if you're familiar with Old Testament history, you know that idolatry and false prophecy, they weren't actually really significant issues uh, for God's people at this time. Uh, so it's a little curious that he singles them out here. But these were the two sins that led to their exile in the first place. This is what got them banished. And what Zechariah is saying is that the cleansing work of the cross is so thorough that it will secure your permanent place with God where there is no possibility of exile for those who are washed in this fountain. It is for all sin. It is not selective. There is nothing outside its range. And there is no sin too great. In fact, what we see is that it is so thorough that it produces an internal change in the lives of God's people. It is not a one-time clean slate that allows you to start over again, but a new principle of allegiance to God that springs from a new heart. That's why verse 3 has this curious phrase about parents executing their false prophet of a son. Some of you might have considered piercing your own child through, maybe. Uh, I almost lost a son this weekend, but you wouldn't really do it. You know? I mean, you wouldn't actually go through with it. Uh, but what Zechariah is speaking here is of a cleansing that is so thorough that your loyalties are transformed. He's, he's not talking about a child sacrifice or some sort of hyper-strict parenting Guidelines, but it's an idealized picture of a complete cleansing. A cleansing where your own loyalty and love to God and His law exceed the closest of your natural relationships. So that Jesus can say in Matthew 10, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's, that's why the former false prophets in verses 4 to 6 won't even admit to their past. It's for the fear of the zeal of God's people that they pretend they're farmers and make up these bad excuses for the evidence against them. It's just another dramatic depiction of the kind of cleansing that God brings. It's not, it does not produce a quiet, 
renunciation of sin, but an overhaul of our affections. A complete overhaul so that our love and loyalty to God swallows up all of our other loyalties. So, we need to be careful here. I, I want you to listen closely to this part. It's actually vital to your relationship with Jesus and your understanding of who Jesus is uh, that we not get these things out of order. Uh, the cleansing uh, that is pictured here, this fountain of forgiveness, it is a work of God. We must see that our devotion to him is the result of what he has accomplished and secured in his son. It is always a response to his, his cleansing and not a means of obtaining it. Now, I know, I know myself well enough, and uh, I've talked to enough of you that I know we have this, this tendency, this sort of short-sighted, uh, myopic, self-centered tendency uh, to hear this kind of talk and think that we have to get clean in order to come to God. Or that we have to get clean in order to get him to love us. Or even that we have to keep ourselves clean to make sure that we don't fall out of his favor. But those are lies. I think perhaps one of the more subtle ways uh, that we do this is in our striving after obedience uh, to God. Which is good and right. Uh, You should Strive for obedience to God. Christians love God. But so often we strive out of shame. And we strive out of some vain attempt to make things right again. Uh, This is not godliness, but unbelief. Uh, When you strive to win God's favor, you subtly deny the free offer of cleansing that is depicted here, and you deny the finished work of Christ. God promises to make you clean, but it will be in Christ alone, and he wants you to believe it, not to earn it. He does not want you to hang your head and try to patch things up. He wants you to seek his forgiveness. If you are ashamed uh, of your past, uh, of of the mess you know uh, that sin has made of your life, or even just of the weekend, God would say to you, look to him. Lay your sin and your shame at the foot of the cross and embrace the cleansing that is offered there. It is... The work of the shepherd alone that brings both repentance and cleansing, and he is absolutely committed to this work of new creation in his people. And just as certain and fixed as that work is, we also see here that it is a process. The shepherd's new creation brings a work of refining in his people. Zechariah shows us that Jesus is both the answer to the problem of sin, but he is also the pattern of our lives in this world. To follow him 
is to become like him. God strikes the shepherd here in the end of chapter 13. Look at verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. See, previously, uh, God's people had done the piercing back in chapter 12, verse 10. But now it's very clear, God is calling down the sword. Now, there is nothing more unconventional or out of control than a savior king who comes and dies. But this is what the whole book has been building to, that it has always been God's plan that the savior shepherd would be the stricken shepherd. And of course, the one struck here is the same as we saw as the, and the one pierced in 1210. He's called a man, but he also stands next to God. It's literally a man who is my peer or a man who is my associate. He's a companion of Yahweh. We've already touched on this, but this is very clearly the God-man. It is Jesus himself, God the Son, God incarnate, who bears the judgment of his people from the hand of God the Father. The plan for all of history before the book was written and all the history that's going to happen after Zechariah has written what he's been describing to destroy God's enemies and rescue his people, it centers not on a bloody military conquest, but on a bloody cross where God brings his judgment on his own, uh, the judgment his people deserve on his own son. How deep the Father's love for us. And when the shepherd is struck here, the sheep are scattered. That's what this, this phrase, turning the hand against the little ones, means. It's literally like insignificant ones. It's just another way to refer to the sheep here. The scattering is part of God's refining work as he recreates the world. The new creation includes both tearing down and building up. So as the new creation takes place, God separates the wheat from the chaff. He separates the sheep from the goats, and he separates those who trust him from those who reject him or dismiss him as irrelevant or just try to ignore him. And the refining doesn't stop there, but continues in the lives of his people. In verses 8 and 9, two-thirds will be cut off, but there's one-third that will be put into the fire and will be refined like silver and gold. God will always preserve a people for himself, but what he's telling us here is that they will not exceed their shepherd king. Just as he was cut off, they too will be purified. We receive our gifts of repentance and cleansing through the work of the cross. And God's sheep follow the shepherd in the pattern of the cross in our own lives. See, with Jesus, it is always 
suffering before glory. He laid down his life for others, as we read in John 10 earlier. So we, too, have to take up our cross because the last shall be first. The cleansing, the cleansing that Zechariah has in mind here is not simply a warm bath or a hot tub, but a refiner's fire. And God is determined to make his people new as he conforms us into the image of his son, slowly stripping away years of sin and shame, old patterns of pride and idolatry. He conforms us into Christ's sufferings, his humility, and into the discipline that he endured. So is Christianity harder than you expected? Or if you are not a Christian, does it appear easy to you? I'll listen to what 1 Peter 4 says. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, I don't, expect, I don't expect us to have the kind of persecution uh, in America that we see in other places for Christians around the world, anytime soon anyway. But if you're paying attention, uh, it is not getting easier. Uh, more and more followers of Jesus are going to have to learn to look at the cross as the pattern Uh, for their life. It is there. It is in the cross of Jesus, the sacrifice of the shepherd king, that new creation is both begun and carried out in his people. The sacrifice is what brings us repentance. It enables us to hate our sin the way God hates it. It's the work of the cross that secures the fountain of cleansing for all of our sin, and it's the work of the cross that gives us the pattern of living in this world. So let me just urge you to look to Jesus. Look to Christ, not not just Jesus in general, or Jesus as nice, or even Jesus as a good teacher, but look to him as the crucified Son of God. It is in the cross that we see our true selves. You and I are sinners who would either run from God or kill him if we thought we could. But the good news of the cross is that we also see God's true self. It is the shepherd king who dies for his people there. So that the crucifixion is no sign of defeat, but a sign that the day of the Lord has come. The new age of the Spirit has dawned. It is much clearer to you and I now than it was to Zechariah and those people. But the question is, what are you doing with this day? That day has come. And if you 
have never humbled yourself before God and submitted your life to him, consider the one who was pierced. Call upon him. Make every effort to be found in Jesus today. Today is the day of salvation. And it's by his death that we call upon God and he answers us and that he says, they are my people. And we will say, the Lord is my God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are not left without a shepherd. We thank you that he cares for us, that Jesus now intercedes for us and that he sent uh, his spirit to live in us. And God, we thank you most of all that he did not leave us to ourselves, but that he became a man and walked on the earth. He humbled himself to flesh for our sake and that he was obedient unto death for our sake. Father, we love him, and we pray that you would help us to love him more. We pray that we would not look anywhere else for forgiveness. We would not look anywhere else for the fountain of life, but that we would look to the one who was pierced. We pray this in his name. Amen.